Well, all right. Now, today we are continuing in our series on the letter to the Philippians. And I encourage you, if you missed any of the other messages, you can find them on our website, LancasterFirst.com, under the media tab. Now, for the past several weeks, we've been in this segment that really goes from chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through the end of chapter 2. It begins with Paul telling them that whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on through the rest of that chapter and in the beginnings of chapter 2, showing us what that looks like, really through the next 33 verses or so, telling us what that looks like, that we should stand firm in one spirit, be willing to suffer for Jesus, uh, have the tenderness and compassion for each other, have lo the love of Jesus for each other, be of one mind, be of one spirit, he says, and be humble and look to the interests of others. And, and after that, he gives us the greatest example of that, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then he gives us two other examples of believers who are fulfilling that in Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so today we come to chapter three. And in chapter three, Paul's going to pivot. I mean, there's a certain issue that's coming against the church, an issue that threatens their spiritual livelihood. It threatens their relationship with God. Now, the surprising thing is this. It, this issue is not coming from without. It's not coming from outside the church, right? It's not coming from the Romans. It's not coming from uh, the government. It's, it's not coming from the Greek culture. It's not even really coming from those non-believing Jewish people who would follow Paul around and gave him so much difficulty, right? This threat is coming from within the church. It's coming from inside. It, it's something that's posing as Christian, but really has nothing to do with Jesus. It's something that's posing as spiritual, but actually hinders genuine spirituality. Um, you know, so sometimes threats come from outside the church, right? And that's mostly what we saw in chapter one. And sometimes threats come from inside the church, and that's what we're seeing here. And so we'll take it, um, we're going to look at verses one through 11 today and take it a few verses at a time and unpack them together and see what we can't take and apply to our lives, all right? Would you all bow with me in prayer over the Word of God? Dear Heavenly Father, you are always speaking. God, we pause now from our busy lives for just a few minutes to hear you. So may your voice penetrate our hearts to our spirits, God. And may your Word confirm, conform us to the image of our Savior, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now let's start with chapter 3. He begins by saying this. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. All right, now that's a pretty good start, isn't it, don't you think? Rejoice in the Lord. He calls them brothers and sisters. All right, so we have this whole family of God uh, vibe that continues here, and uh, he says rejoice in the Lord. Well, that's great too, right? I mean, rejoicing is great, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you rather rejoice than, than be in mourning, right? I mean, would rather rejoice than, than go, go around all sad and gloomy and grumpy all day long, right? Rejoice uh, in, in the Lord, right? And, uh, um, you know, I'm kind of glad that this is here. This rejoice in the Lord is here. It's one of those Old Testament things that began in the Old Testament and, and then that passed through all the way into New Testament living as well, all right? So, so here's what I mean. Maybe you know, maybe you don't know that. Um, everything in the Old Testament passes to the cross, goes to the cross, right? The cross is a dividing line in history. And so everything from the Old Testament goes to the cross, and it's either 
fulfilled there and abolished, or it's fulfilled there and reinterpreted for New Testament life, right? So let me show you what I mean. So all of the sacrifices and the whole sacrificial system and, and all of the ceremonial laws, those come to the cross, and they're fulfilled entirely in Jesus on the cross, and then they're abolished, right? We don't sacrifice animals anymore. We don't need to do those ceremonial laws anymore, right? But then the, uh, the, the moral law goes to the cross, and it's fulfilled by Jesus and reinterpreted for New Testament life in the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, let me show you what I mean. So a law, for example, like thou shalt not murder. It goes to the cross, it's fulfilled in Jesus, and then reinterpreted for New Testament life. Thou, it's not that you just shall not murder now, but instead he says you shall not hate, right? And you shall not be angry with your brother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? By the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And then a law like, do not commit adultery. It passes to the cross. It's fulfilled in Jesus, reinterpreted for New Testament life. And it becomes not just thou shalt not commit adultery, but you, you shouldn't even look at your, spouse, at your neighbor's spouse with, with, and sideways or with any evil intent, right? Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now this rejoice in the Lord is another Old Testament idea. It began uh, with the with the Old Testament festivals that God gave them. He said, you know, you're to come together and rejoice in me and all of the good things that I have done for you, right? And then it continued all through their history. We see during the times of David and Hezekiah and Josiah, especially with the revivals there, there was so much rejoicing in the Lord and in all his goodness to them. And it continued all through the prophets as we see Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Zechariah all spoke of this rejoicing in the Lord or rejoicing before the Lord. And here we see that this idea passes right into New Testament life by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and I'm glad that that wasn't abolished on the cross, right? Aren't you glad that that's one of the things that passes into New Testament life? He says, rejoice in the Lord. And, and there's very little reinterpretation here, right? Uh, the, the only reinterpretation may be a, a greater clarification and understanding of who this Lord is that we're rejoicing in. It's our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says things like, you know, rejoice in him. Rejoice in his salvation. Rejoice in his resurrection. Rejoice in the grace of God. Rejoice in his mercy and his kindness. Rejoice in the Lord. And, and notice also the circumstances in which Paul says to rejoice. I mean, He's not in great circumstances right now. He's still in prison, right? His circumstances aren't great. But he says, rejoice anyway. Because here's the truth of the matter. If you wait until your circumstances are all ideal before you rejoice in the Lord, well, you are never going to rejoice ever. Because until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, there's always going to be something that's not quite right. There's always going to be something that's not ideal. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Not in your circumstances or in your situation. Rejoice in the Lord, right? Because that's something you can always do because God is always gracious to you. His favor is not dependent upon your circumstances. It's dependent on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so go on to verse 2 and 3 now. 
He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, wait a minute. Wait. What is going on here? I mean, he started the chapter with, with all this great vibe going on, right? A family vibe and rejoicing and all of that. And all of a sudden, he just, he just turns and says, all right, and watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. So what's he talking about here, right? Well, he's talking about a danger to the church that's coming from within, all right? And to understand that, to understand what he's talking about, we're going to look back at where all of this started. You can find it in the book of Acts, chapter 15, if you want to look there. We'll be looking at that for just a little bit. And, and this, all this stuff happened just a little bit, just one chapter before this Philippian church that we're studying was founded by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16, okay? So this is just a little bit before that. So let's look at it, Acts chapter 15. All right, now by the time we get to this passage, the gospel has begun to spread all over, right? It was in Jerusalem, it spread to Samaria, and also to Judea, and to Antioch, and to, um, by this time, to good parts of what's now Asia Minor, right? And, uh, Turkey, and so, um, and it says here, that Paul's just returned from his first mission trip, and, and it says that certain people, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So there were many Pharisees and, and, and uh, Jewish believers who had come to faith in Christ by this time, and uh, they retained a lot of their Jewish customs, and, and that was okay for them, they, I mean, they were Jewish. That's who they were, right? But apparently, some of them were shocked that these new Gentile believers in Jesus weren't becoming Jewish after they'd uh, come to Jesus. Because it was not uncommon in that day for Gentiles to convert to Judaism. And they had an entire process for how that would happen, right? First, someone would have to become what they called a god Fearer. That would be someone who rejected the, the, the pagan polytheistic uh, God system and they preferred the superior moral uh, codes of the monotheistic God of the Jewish people. And so they, they became a God fearer. They probably went to synagogue and, and, and heard uh, from, from the Old Testament, right? And, uh, but yet they had not yet become completely Jewish. And, you know, many people think that the centurion in, in Luke chapter 7, the one who sent the elders of the Jewish people to ask Jesus to heal. His, um, his child, that this person was one of these God-fearers. It says that these elders said, you should do this for him because he loves our nation and built our synagogue. Probably one of these God-fearers, right? And then also a lot of people think that Cornelius may have been a God-fearer, right? Uh, and uh, um, that he possibly wanted to be a, become a Christian, but, but he thought he had to become fully Jewish first, right? And so God said, no, 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 you don't have to become Jewish first. You can become a believer in Jesus right now, right? So the first step to becoming a Jewish convert was to become a God-fearer. And then, and then there were all these other rites and religious ceremonies uh, eventually leading up to, for males, finally you had to be circumcised, right? And so apparently these certain people came on down to Antioch, which, which seems to be the center where Paul was based out of, his ministry was based out of, and they began 
to teach people, you have to be circumcised. You have to become Jewish, so to speak. And so, I mean, probably they thought that, okay, the problem here is just a little bit of education. All these Gentiles coming to Christ, they haven't had time to convert yet. We need to go down there to Antioch where all of this is happening and just kind of fix this and give a little bit of education here. You know, so, um, but the problem was they were just wrong about that idea. That wasn't God's idea. The Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. They didn't need to become Jewish and follow all these Jewish customs in order to, to be saved, to have a relationship with Jesus, right? And so these people come anyway, teaching this false doctrine, and it says that it brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute with them. And it was so sharp that eventually the church in Antioch, well, they sent Paul and Barnabas along with these certain people to Jerusalem to talk with all the other apostles and elders about this issue. And so in Acts 15, we have what is called the First Church Council. All right, so they meet, and you can read about it there later, but they meet, and uh, they hear the question, and Peter reminds them all about uh, the incident with Cornelius and how God accepted them solely on the basis of faith in Jesus. And then Paul and Barnabas tell them all about all the miracles that God is doing among the Gentiles as well, basically saying, listen, the same favor that God showed on Cornelius, now he's showing to all these Gentiles, God's putting his stamp of approval on their faith, right, without becoming Jewish first. And then James finally stands up and shows them how all of this is actually in agreement with the scriptures as well. And so they finally decide that, no, the Gentiles don't have to uh, become Jewish. They don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved, right, or to remain saved, right? And you would think that that settled it, right? But apparently it didn't because it looks like all these people, they began following Paul around wherever he went, and when, when he finally left somewhere, they would come into these churches acting like they were someone special and, uh, or sometimes even saying they were sent from Jerusalem, and, uh, and they would begin to teach these people uh, th these false doctrines, and, um, and they would confuse churches and throw them into confusion. If you want to read um, uh, an account of that, read the book of Galatians. The entire book is written because of this problem. And, and Paul here is warning them about these people. Uh, he calls them the circumcision group. That's one of his names for them. That's the nice word that he used for them. But you see here, he also called them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. In another place, he called them false brothers and rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. So clearly, Paul has a really low view and a really low opinion of these people. He doesn't want anyone to pay attention to their teaching because they're wrong and they lead people away from the genuine, pure faith in the Lord Jesus. And so, in verse 3, he goes on. He says, for it, is, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, right? And what he's saying is that, you know, circumcision is one of those Old Testament things that passed to the cross and was fulfilled in Jesus and abolished there because it represents a reality that is already here now. It represented a soft, tender heart before God, a heart that hears God, a heart that hears his word and has the word of God written on it, a heart that responds to God in faith. And so we boast in Jesus, not our own righteousness, right? He is our righteousness. We don't serve God in the flesh or in our own self-righteousness. We serve God by the power 
of the Holy Spirit living in us, indwelling us, and filling us, right? So Paul is saying, we already are everything that circumcision represented. We are that by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we come to faith in Jesus. And so going on in the next verses, Paul uses himself as an example of what he's talking about. Let's look at it in verse 4. He says, we're the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. You know, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's saying, hey, listen, all y'all out there who think you're all that, who think you're, you're, you're so holy and you, and you so perfectly upheld the law of Moses, right? Y'all have nothing on me, he's saying. I mean, look at his description of himself in verses 5 and 6. He says, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He's saying, that is just like the law says, right from the beginning. I, I, I've, I've been upholding the law. And he goes on and says, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That he, was, he, he was born a Hebrew. He wasn't a Hebrew co uh, convert. He was born into Judaism. And then he says he's a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I like that. It, it, it's kind of like he's saying he's their Captain America. Or like he's Captain Israel here, right? Uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Goes on, he says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. That means he lived in the strictest observance of the Mosaic law. I mean, he would even um, tithe on his little mint garden, his, his herb garden. You know, he'd go, go out and see his herbs and go, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, that one's uh, for uh, the tithe. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Every tenth one for the tithe, these, these little herbs he, he's tithing on. And, uh, and uh, one kind of wonders, I think, what the um, chief priest did. You know, oh, here comes Paul again, you know, carrying this, a bunch of herbs. What are we going to do with the herbs he's bringing, right? And he goes on and says, as for zeal persecuting the church and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's saying, you know what? You could put a microscope to his life in Judaism and you would have a hard time finding any deviation from Moses' law, right? I mean, he had it going on as far as being a great Hebrew was, right? But look at verse 7. Look at what he says. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, that's an amazing statement. I mean, in the past, he considered all of these things to, that he mentions to be gains. That is, achievements that he had earned. Trophies on his wall. One gain after another, right? And in talking about this to the Galatians, he said this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I mean, he had many gains, many trophies, right? Many accomplishments. He was on a great career path. But then he says, I now consider those things lost for the sake of Christ. I mean, look at that word lost for a minute. I mean, it's in the singular. So before Jesus, he viewed himself as having many gains, each achievement, another gain. But now looking back on that time, he views it all as one great big loss. It's lost time, lost resources, energy wasted. All that time pursuing other things besides Jesus, wasted. You know, can I tell you, as a pastor, I've had opportunity a number of times to sit with people as they were approaching the end of their life. 
And no one has ever said to me they regret a moment loving Jesus, a moment growing in Jesus, a, a moment serving Jesus. No one ever says that. But I've heard people regret time wasted. People who say, you know what, I wish I didn't wait so long to start serving him. That I've heard people say. Regret wasted time chasing all kinds of other things that just weren't important in the grand scheme of things. That I've heard people say, but no one says, boy, I regret the amount of time I spent loving and serving Jesus. Going on in verse 8, he says this, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. So not only does he consider all the achievements that he had attained to be a lost, but he also considers everything else that he could have ever had. Compared to knowing Jesus, all of that's a loss. That is, everything that the world could offer you would be a loss compared to knowing Jesus. I mean, compared to being right with God through Jesus Christ. I mean, what would you trade for Jesus? What does the world have to offer you that you would trade Jesus for? I mean, how about wealth? Would you trade Jesus for wealth? Well, I mean, think about it. God says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he says, I will provide for your needs out of my riches in glory. And his streets are made of gold. Well, then how about health and life? Would you trade Jesus for health and life? Well, think about it, right? No matter how healthy you are and, and how long you can manage to live, the Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die. No matter how long you can get yourself to live, eventually you are going to die. But for the follower of Jesus, it says that when we see him on that day, there will be no more death or mourning. How about happiness? Would you trade Jesus for happiness? You know, Jesus said that in the world you'll have trials and tribulations, but for the follower of Jesus, when we see him on that day, he says, there will be no more crying or pain. How about position? You know, some people like position, right? Positions of power, right? Would you trade Jesus for, for some position? Well, for the follower of Jesus, it says this, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What position could be greater than that? I mean, compared to what Jesus offers us, you know, anything in this world would be garbage by comparison. It would be like trading uh, a meal at the finest dining establishment in the city in order to go dumpster diving behind one of the uh, fast food joints for a meal that night. He's saying there's nothing this world can offer that I would trade for Christ. I will give them all up to have Jesus. Going on in verse 9, he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. All right, so... So here still, he still has in view this problem of, of these Judaizers, um, uh, the circumcision group, teaching 
things that says that Jesus is not quite enough, that you need to add a little bit to that, a little bit of your own works thrown in there. They're teaching that. And, and you know what? It's a little bit of a seductive idea. I mean, it sounds a little spiritual, right? Be good, right? Earn your own way, right? It sounds spiritual, but the truth is it's prideful. It actually says to God, you know what? Uh, what you did wasn't quite enough. I have to help you out a, a little bit. But we must come humbly to God. That's the only way to receive this. We must come humbly in faith. You know, because we don't really bring anything of value into this relationship. We come as poor in spirit. Not having a righteousness of our own, but only the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. All right, look at verses 10 and 11. He goes on, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, look at that phrase, I, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Okay, and this is one of the most cool things I think about the gospel, about, about Christianity, right? It's not primarily about following a religion. Right? It's not simply about following a set of rules. It's not about just checking off a bunch of religious boxes. It's about knowing someone. It's about knowing God, about knowing Jesus personally. I mean, think of the best friend you've ever had and how great that relationship was. Well, a relationship with Jesus is even better. It's even deeper than that. And look at the word here, no, I want to know Christ. That word comes from a Greek word called gnosko. And it means an experiential knowledge. Not, not just information that you've processed, right? It's not just head knowledge. It's a knowledge you have from something that you've experienced. He's saying, you know, I want to know Christ that way. Not, not just some head knowledge or information. I want to know him like you know a person. I want you to experience a relationship with him. And then he goes on and shares two aspects of that relationship, two ways he expects to experience this relationship. The first is by experiencing the power of his resurrection. And so when Jesus died on the cross, right, he paid the penalty for our sins. He paved the way for forgiveness. But in order for all of that to go into effect, something else had to happen. Jesus had to rise from the dead. And so it says that on the third day, it says there was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb. He rolled back the tomb and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And it says the angel said to the women who had, who had come, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it validated everything that he ever said. But more than that, it also validated his mission. It was God the Father saying that the mission that Jesus had to die on the cross and pay for the sins of humanity was successful. He, 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 the debt of sin is paid. And not only that, since Jesus is now resurrected and ascended to the Father and is seated at the right hand of the Father at the highest place, he now pours out gifts to us. He pours out gifts of grace and mercy and kindness, 
provision and care, right? Gifts of the Spirit like healing and miracles and the words of knowledge and discernment, right? The gift of the indwelling and overflowing Holy Spirit, right? He pours out His gifts on us. All of these things are gifts that come from the power of His resurrection, right? These are things that we experience because of the power of His resurrection. By faith in Jesus, we know. That is, we share experientially in the power of his resurrection. You know, I love that part, right? You all love that part too, right? And we should love that part. That's part of knowing God, of knowing Christ. But then he goes on and he says he also wants to know him in the participation of his sufferings. And some translations say it this way, the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, wait a minute. I know some of you are probably saying, you know, Pastor Paul, I, I, didn't, I don't think I signed up for that, right? Well, that's not something we jump at, right? That's not something we get excited about, right? Suffering is not something we desire, right? We don't wish it on anyone else. So what's Paul getting at here then? What does he mean when he says he wants to know Jesus by sharing in his sufferings? Well, let's start by, first by what it doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean that we share in the substitutionary sufferings of Jesus on the cross, right? We've already seen that. We don't add anything to that. We don't help Jesus pay for our salvation, right? And, and he doesn't mean the ordinary sufferings that are common to, to all of mankind. There are some sufferings that are just common to everybody, right? Uh, um, sickness and uh, death and other types of things that are common to everybody. He really doesn't mean that, right? And he doesn't mean any type of asceticism either. He doesn't mean self-flagellation or causing suffering to yourself, all right? That really is not a Bible idea. It doesn't help us become more spiritual or experience Jesus in any deeper way, right? But what he's talking about here, I believe, is suffering for your faith in Jesus. Suffering because of your testimony about Jesus, all right? So if you've ever been denied or passed over a job description because of your faithfulness to Jesus, or if you've ever been mocked or ridiculed because of your faithfulness to Jesus, or if your business has ever been sued because of your faithfulness to Jesus in his word, or if you've ever experienced persecution because of your faithfulness to Jesus, or even if, like Paul, you're ever put in prison because of your faith, or, or even if you're called on to make the ultimate sacrifice for your faith in Jesus. That's what he's talking about, suffering for Jesus. And you know, when we think about things, it's natural to shrink back a little bit. No one seeks these things out. Right? That would just be weird, right? That would just be not right. But, but I think Paul is saying here that if you're ever called on to suffer for Jesus, there's a knowing Jesus that comes along with that. Jesus doesn't abandon you during that time. He doesn't just turn his back on you and leave you alone during that time. There's a deeper knowing of Jesus that comes along with that. Peter said it this way. He said, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Did you catch that? He says, if you suffer for Jesus, God is coming closer to you. If you suffer for Jesus, his glory is resting on you. He goes on to say, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God 
that you bear that name. Paul says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. May that be our all-consuming passion. That like Paul, we have no righteousness of our own, only the righteousness of Jesus. That like Paul, we consider everything that this world could offer us a loss compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. That like Paul, we desire to, to know him in the power of his resurrection and also in the fellowship of his sufferings. All right, so as we get ready to close this morning, I want to pray with you. Would you, allow, would you all bow with me in prayer? And first, let me ask you, maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're hearing my voice and, uh, and you say to me, you know, Pastor Paul, I've really had a tough go of it for a little bit. I've really been I'm struggling with the things that I'm going through, you know, but I want to know God better. I want to uh, experience him, him more in my heart. And, uh, and, you, and you'd say to me this morning, you know, Pastor Paul, that's me. I want to pray with you, right? If you're here, raise your hand maybe, or even if you're at your home, you can just uh, say, yeah, Jesus, that's me. God, I'm, I'm right here, right? And uh, I'm just going to pray for you for a moment. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of those who've been feeling this way lately. God, I pray that they would also sense your love and grace and your nearness to them in the name of Jesus. Strengthen, strengthen, strengthen your people. Encourage them and lift them up. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And all right, I also just want to ask you, if you're here you're at home or you're listening, and you'd say to me, you know, Pastor, you know, I've never really experienced this power of his resurrection that you've been talking about here, that Paul has been talking about in this passage. Never experienced that. Never really followed Jesus or given my life to him. But I want to do that. I'm ready to do that today. I want to do that. And uh, um, if that's you, I want to lead you all in a prayer this morning. It's a prayer of beginning, a prayer, a starting point in a walk, in a relationship with Jesus. It's not a magic prayer, but just a beginning point. So would you again bow your heads with me and follow me in this prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I can't save myself. I don't measure up to your standard. You're holy, and I'm sinful. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I believe he rose from the dead. Jesus, be my Savior, be my Lord and Master. Help me experience the power and blessings of your resurrection day by day. And help me grow in you each day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I can tell you, my friend, if you've done that, God's done everything you've asked him to do. He says the old things are passed away, and everything has become new. There's forgiveness, there's grace, and there's mercy for you. And he wants you to grow in your relationship with him a little bit every day. So I encourage you to do just three simple things. First, get in the Word of God. If you haven't been in the Word of God before, then start in the Gospel of Mark, and you'll be amazed at how God is speaking to you in ways you never imagined. And then secondly, get in prayer a little bit every day. God wants to hear from you, even if it's only for five or ten minutes to start. And then tell someone what you've done. Tell another Christian what you've done, or, or let us know um, the, the Christian life is intended to be lived out in community with other people of faith. So let someone know what you've done. Now, would everybody just bow with me as we close this service in prayer? God, thank you for your salvation. 
for the righteousness of Jesus. God, help us value Jesus more than anything the world offers. Help us to know you deeper in your resurrection blessings and help us to know you deeper in your sufferings. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.